We'll be reading the entirety of Acts chapter 12 out of the New King James Version, as is my custom. You might want to turn me down a little bit there, Ken. Thank you. God's Word declares, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. Because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping. Bound with two chains between two soldiers and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and the light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise, quickly! And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked on the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. They said to her, You are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, If it is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had happened, what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. He went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But they came to him with one accord, having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend. They asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord grew and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Well, as I shared, we are going to return to our study in Acts, having taken a couple weeks off in our uh, celebration of Thanksgiving this year. Uh, wanted to, and it really, not accidentally, we want to set the stage for what we face in chapter 12. And that stage, of course, that we established began really with the... Uh, beginning of the Gentile church, the fullness of the church age coming into being. We talk about Pentecost being the birth of the church, but that, uh, and, and technically that is true with the coming of the Holy Spirit. But the fullness of it really doesn't uh, come until we find the events around Cornelius and, and uh, the opening of faith to the Gentiles for the fullness of God's expectation for the world, that that is where uh, he desires the gospel to go to all creatures, and we found that. And now we come into um, a time when that ministry is coming back to Jerusalem. We saw that three weeks ago as we studied, uh, where the exercise of their 
faith was demonstrated by their care for one another. Not just within the context of the local church, but of the global church. They recognized that from Antioch they needed to send aid to those in Jerusalem. And that aid is going to set up uh, the church in Jerusalem really to have a strong position, um, not just financially but, and materially, but spiritually among the people. And it's going to be evidenced here. Um, and so we uh, left off there. Uh, and we left the idea of a church being generous in meeting others' needs to understanding the foundation, really, of that generosity, and that is that we have a thankful spirit, that we have a, a level of gratitude and a, a level of understanding that what we have is really not our own. It is a gift of God, and therefore it is one that He has a right to control. And if we are genuine in our gratitude toward God, that generosity is... Not difficult. In fact, it is quite natural. A secondary aspect of this then comes to while the Gentile church is seeking to alleviate the physical suffering of the Jerusalem church, we also see a church that is under attack, not only in the midst of a famine, but from the leadership. And this is very common. It's going to happen a lot in church history. This is really one of our first uh, times that we may make that connection, although it's not made obvious in the text, that we can start to connect uh, tragic occurrences in the world uh, with blaming Christians. Uh, this was something the Roman Empire became pretty proficient at. In fact, uh, one of the uh, main writings of St. Augustine uh, was, was uh, focused on this whole fact that uh, you blame the Christians for this and that, and he writes a lengthy treatise uh, to explain that that's simply not the case, and it's not rational, it's not accurate, um, that rather um, it is the uh, Romans themselves who brought much of it upon them, and their false gods who are no gods. And so we um, come to an event here, an account here, in the midst of understanding the circumstances of the land uh, of Judea from the previous chapter, that we want to examine what happens when the church, when the people of God become the brunt of blame for anything and everything that occurs. And how do we respond when that blame turns into assault? when it turns into uh, opposition on a physical level, how do we respond? And before we do look into this in chapter 12, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word before us and your spirit within us by which we can examine your word. And Lord, we uh, pray that you might have the preeminence, might have the liberty to work mightily to illuminate us to your truth and also to convict us of it, to convince us of it. And Lord, we pray that we might be responsive to his work, not only allowing him an environment where he can work, but uh, a place where his work is appreciated and loved and sought after. And Lord, we pray that we might, in our response by faith, choosing to surrender ourselves to your will, that his work might bring great profit this hour. Again, we pray for his protection over this time, that we might hear your word, that it might not be tainted by things of this world, by error or opinion. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we find that about that time uh, is how chapter 12 starts off. About that time. About the time that uh, all the events up in Antioch were occurring and they were sending Paul uh, and Barnabas back down with a gift to care for the famine that was pretty much just starting in Judea, from what we can tell at this time. But it was already starting to feel a little bit of a pinch. Um, and we're going to see that more at the end of the chapter than the beginning. But about that time... When all these things were coming together, we find uh, Herod is going to take action against the people. Uh, 
we also find out that in the midst of this, we are coming near to the spring. Uh, we are moving towards Passover. And uh, again, we uh, immediately have some connections, don't we, between what's going on in this time frame, what went on uh, a dozen years or so earlier uh, under uh, Herod again, uh, and another guy that uh, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, uh, and uh, someone named Jesus. There was in that same context, the same time frame of around the Passover week. And remember that they really didn't want to deal with that. The Jewish people didn't want to address Jesus until after Passover, but uh, God had some other plans because Passover is critical to the work of Christ um, in terms of being the Passover lamb, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so they were forced to deal with it. And, of course, it all was able to occur before that sunset. Uh, but here we find that uh, as we drew into the feast, the Days of Unleavened Bread, the Passover week, that uh, they were able to successfully put off dealing with Peter. But prior to that, we find that already one of the twelve has fallen. Uh, James, the brother John. Of course, we know James and John as the sons of thunder, as the ones that, uh, whose mother said, I would like my sons to be at your right hand and your left hand, your kingdom. And Christ says, not for me to grant that. Um, we find that this is the James we're talking about. We're not talking about James who's leading the church by this point. That was the half-brother of Jesus who was leading the church. We're going to refer to him a little bit later on, when probably next week, when we see uh, Peter out there uh, going house to house to let the church know that he's out, that their prayers have been answered. Uh, he's going to refer to James then, and that's the leader of the church uh, who is the brother of Christ. And so this is the brother of John, one of the original twelve. And Herod... Um, is seeking to uh, establish uh, a strong position among his constituents, if you will. And we're going to see that played out throughout the chapter. And just when he thinks he has gotten it all together, that he's appeased who he needs to appease, and really strengthened his base, if you will, to use political terminology of our day, uh, that once he's strengthened his base, base, God just takes it away from him. Everything his life included. But he's in that action and he wants to uh, please the Jews and he knows that a very important time of worship is coming up. We have all these people coming into the region on pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate. He sees a, a, a great opportunity to set a, a positive position for himself among all the Jewish leadership. Uh, and so he knows who they want out of the way and he takes it upon himself to be their agent. And so on behalf of them, he stretches out his hand and is able to slay, innocently, James with the sword, it says. And it worked. It did exactly what it wanted to do. In verse 3 it says, he saw that it pleased the Jews. This is exactly what I needed to get these Jewish leaders back on my side. It had been strange somewhat in the years prior, um, but at this point, he has opportunity to really solidify that backing and that cooperation, and, and uh, uh, which Rome really, really wanted him to have. They wanted him to establish that. And so he saw that this action against this leader of this new sect called the Way, uh, that killing him pleased the Jews. It pleased them. And it was an opportunity. Well, one does that has that kind of a benefit. Let's go after some more. And the next one he is able to capture is Peter. Now remember that so far, all of the arrests, all of the discussions, all the beatings that the apostles have received have been not from the political realm, but from the religious realm. If you go back in the book of Acts and rehearse that, you'll find they're being brought before the Pharisees, before the Sanhedrin. They're being brought before these various religious authorities in the temple. And largely, so far, the political arena has really left it alone and just let them do what they wanted, including the, the stoning of Stephen. Uh, that wasn't overseen by the Romans. It was overseen by... Uh, he was a Roman citizen, but by a young uh, 
rabbi in study, a Pharisee named Paul. Well, it was Saul then. And so we find that um, now we have the state coming down on us. Not only do we have opposition from other religious leaders, now we have the government coming down on the head of the church. And the arguments here are going to be different. Um, We're going to really develop this a lot more when we get into the end of the book of Acts, where Paul has to defend himself against Felix Festus um, and such. And so we find uh, that there's a different uh, course that the disciples are going to take with regard to government leaders compared to religious leaders. With the religious leaders, they simply threw out the power of Christ. And and what are you doing, you know? how can you say the miracles didn't happen? You say you believe in God. All we are doing is the work of God. You say you believe in the prophets. Well, here's the prophet. Here's the fulfillment of prophecy. And they, and they basically use that faith to drive their message and to confound them. And over again, we find that description. They confounded the Jews. The Jews couldn't answer, just like they couldn't really answer to Christ. They couldn't answer the disciples. Um, because their opposition to the very work of God was inconsistent with their statement that they were the servants of God. Yet we find that very thing still holding true today. We find those who claim Christ's name and yet fundamentally are in opposition to his kingdom. But that's not what's on the docket here. What we have today is not opposition from religious leaders, but from the government. Oh, granted that he's doing it to please these same enemies of the church, but he's doing it with a different approach and authority and purpose. His is not really to squelch their message. Frankly, I don't know that he cared about the message. He had political things that he wanted to accomplish. It was a critical period of time for the nation of Israel. And for him, it was, it was politically expedient to do this. But what we find out by the end of this chapter is that while our government thinks in terms of their actions only in terms of the, what's good for the nation or what's good for their reign or rule or for their party um, in our circumstances, that God has a very different view of their exercise of their political authority. That for God, it is a matter of, are you glorifying me or not, as you rule this nation. God's expectation, even for corrupt and ungodly and and even godless rulers, his expectation for them is that they will rule their nation Uh, to his glory. That is the standard he holds up for all of them. And he measures them accordingly. And that's why when we look through the scriptures and we see instances where um, we have the Pharaoh who recognizes the God of Joseph and and really gets rid of all of the heathen worship of of Egypt and, and just says, Joseph and his God are in charge. And uh, the tragedy of when a Pharaoh was raised up hundreds of years later that didn't know the God of Joseph or Joseph. But God was going to hold him accountable for that ignorance, that chosen ignorance, not to recognize who these great peoples of the land born out of Jacob were and who their God was and what it meant to Egypt and her deliverance in times past. The phenomenalness of when someone like Nebuchadnezzar recognizes and responds with repentance before the God of Daniel, and and we see the impact on his nation. And and again, uh, what is it that humbled him? Well, God says, you haven't brought me glory. You took glory for yourself. So now you're going to spend a few years eating grass like an ox in the fields and not keeping care of yourself like a human at all until he comes to his right mind and then 
becomes one of the writers of Scripture as he shares his testimony with all of his people that there is no God but Daniel's God. He's the one true and living God. These are phenomenal um, examples of God's interrelationship and expectation of government. And here Herod has even further expectation because not only is he a heathen foreign king in a foreign land that has limited exposure to the gospel or to the truth of Jehovah. Um, He is the king in Israel. He has a lineage there. Granted, he was raised largely in in Rome, but uh, he was sent there to be king. His lineage is from there. Uh, He is a Jew himself. At least an Israelite, we'll put it like that. Maybe not Jewish. That's of the tribe of Judah. But he's an Israelite. And, and, and likely a Jew as well. But uh, we, we find him in his homeland, uh, well acquainted with uh, their beliefs. And of all the people who should bring honor to, to God, certainly that government official will do that. But that's not what we find. Rather, Herod is acting like a politician. He's acting like someone that uh, is trying to simply piece together his government to strengthen his position Um, And whether he had any ideas beyond the borders of Judea that uh, he possessed, we don't know. But here he is seeing an opportunity by putting his boot on the neck of those that would not lift their hand against him. We find him taking action as a as the political as the government of the pe- of the nation against this body of people and not for any religious advantage purely for political gain and we see our Brethren in other lands, and to a degree, we're starting to see it here of exactly this, that we are starting to see this, this uh, assault upon God's people, uh, not really for religious reasons. Um, sometimes those are claimed, but that's really not what's going on, and it's not really to, uh, to worship or to purify anything, and that includes in Islamic countries. It's not really what it's about. It is all politically driven um, and, uh, uh, and motivated. And so we find that largely it is the movement of masses to solidify political uh, interests of foreign governments. How do we respond? How do the people of God prepare? When you start seeing your leaders killed and imprisoned, Well, the church does two things. We're going to get into the account of Peter's release from prison next week more so. Um, But I want to look at their response. It says the church gathered and prayed without ceasing. They didn't raise up a crowd to go protest at City Hall. Didn't happen. They didn't really go public at all, from what we can tell. They went into each other's homes, they gathered, and they prayed. They lifted it up before the Lord, and they gave it to Him, recognizing that it is He who sets up kings and kingdoms. It is He that holds them all to account. It is He who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And this is a matter for him to take up with their government, not for them to take up with their government. They prayed. God is going to intervene on Peter's behalf, but he did not intervene on James' behalf. We may struggle with this a little bit, and we're going to deal with that a lot more next week. Um... At what point does God allow this injury to occur, but not this one? Why is he permitting this much 
and somehow delivering these. We're going to investigate that a lot more next week. But I really want to look at, at Herod's um, engagement here with his people and how we can really trust God to resolve these issues. We pick back up on Herod's trail, if you will, on the other side of Peter's release. They get up in the morning, of course, in verse 19. Herod, it says, searched for him. That is Peter. He hadn't found him. He talks to the guards. Um, The guard's story doesn't pan out. Um, They must have fallen asleep. There's no other way for this guy to escape. Um, By the way, the guard that Herod sent was an incredible one. Um, he, He knew who he was dealing with. He knew who Peter was. This wasn't out of ignorance that Herod did this. He knew exactly who to go after. Um, and the guard he sets there um, is a very highly trained guard. And so you have shifts of four. Um, so you have um, two men sitting right beside you, one on either side. And you have two men outside the gate. And that shift occurs every four to six hours. So they're getting those shifts. And around the clock, he has that kind of guard. And these were Roman men whose lives were on the line. That if anything happened to Peter, um, they were responsible. They had to hold him there throughout the Passover. Uh, On the other side of Passover, which would have been uh, a Sunday morning, uh, they were ready. That was their expectation, to have Peter ready to be addressed. Um, He'd set the guard their story didn't pan out. didn't make sense. And they paid for it with their life. And Herod is a bit upset. This was his opportunity to really solidify this section of the population in his corner. And so he leaves and goes to the sea and stays there. But there's another area. Remember, we have a famine going on. Starting to get pinched. And there's another region of his reign that has had some problems, Tyre and Sidon. So he wants to address that. And Tyre and Sidon, though, are being hit by the famine, is the indication here. Uh, They're starting to feel it. And they're recognizing that um, we don't have the resources of food to rebel against our king. The king is supplying some of the resources already for the territory. They're already starting to struggle physically. Um, Herod is already taking some steps to provide for his people in the midst of this uh, time of famine. And it says that Tyre and Sidon recognized this, and they said, we have got to make peace with Herod. Um, Our food supply is drying up. We're dependent upon him. Um, There are some regions that still haven't fully been touched by it. And again, Herod was the contact with the entire Roman Empire. It is only through him that you're going to get any access to anything brought in from around the empire. And so they do a great political move. They hook up with a guy named Blastus in verse 20 with a personal aid. He makes They make Blastus their friend, and they come to Herod asking for peace. Not particularly because they liked Herod, right? But because they were getting hungry. That's a good reason to make peace, isn't it, when you're hungry? And so they understood the ramifications of their circumstances, and here Herod has another opportunity to take another region, uh, a very important region of, of his realm, and bring it under control. He's solidifying his political position so that when Rome looks at him as the under king, they will see that he has taken what has been historically a pretty tumultuous area and has really brought peace and stability to it. And certainly Herod has ideas of moving up out of Judea and getting back to Rome as is, uh, seems to be his interests as some of his forefathers. So here's another area that he's able to, to bring into a peaceful situation. He's able to do it 
without really a lot of uh, military action at all. And uh, he invites them to come. And on that day, he speaks to them. Whether verse 22 was genuine or contrived, we're not told. <laughs> we're not really told how good a speaker Herod really was. It just says that he gave an oration, and the people kept saying, it says the people kept shouting as he's speaking, um, uh, the voice of a God and not a man. Uh, that they were just hearing his oration and responding uh, in every positive way to it. Uh, the way that would look like in our society would be standing ovations, interrupting speeches. Have you ever watched the president's speeches and how one side stands? And you ever wonder why it's always just one half of the Congress that stands and applauds during the State of the Union? I don't think in my lifetime, I don't know if it ever happened under Reagan, um, I was in college, so that was... Um, I don't think in my lifetime I remember seeing both hands, both sides of Congress standing to applaud the president in the middle of a speech. I can't remember. It used to happen. It's rare. Um, but that's the comparableness. So you're going to interrupt the speech by shouting, it's not the voice of a man, this is the voice of a God! Not only the content, but the whole uh, delivery and everything. They're, they're going to just applaud him. They're going to lift him up. They're going to talk about this is the great order. This is our king. This is, the, this is the, a great man. And whether they came intending to do that just to make sure their food supply was secure. And by the way, uh, I've been in a country where that's exactly what happened. Um, if you've ever watched the speeches of Fidel Castro in the past, and the masses of Cubans in Havana that are all applauding him, um, they're doing it for one reason. If they don't, they don't get any food. I've been there. And if they don't show up at their assigned speech, and they, and they have people watching, and you don't respond the way you're supposed to respond, you don't get your food that month. Maybe not for the rest of your life. Sometimes you go to jail. So this could easily be contrived by the people of Tyre and Sidon that we're just going to massage this guy's ego because our food supply is dependent upon him. Or maybe they were genuine and he really was orating in a fantastic fashion. We don't know. We're simply told that he's interrupted in the midst of his speech that as he pauses, they don't applause. They shout out a voice of a God and not a man. Well, this is what Romans want to hear. By this point, we have already begun to develop the idea of political leaders being deified in Rome. The Caesars stopped just being great leaders and started about this time to start being identified with God's. This is exactly what Herod wants to hear. He wants to hear that he's being treated by his people as Caesar expects to be treated, as their God. He is lifting himself up above everyone else. And he is receiving this praise of men, not just their appreciation of his speechifying skills. <laughs> There's an old term. But he's receiving from them their worship. And this is simply when God says it must stop. Now God allowed him to kill James and didn't strike him dead. God allowed him to arrest Peter and didn't strike him dead. Now, God delivered Peter from his hand, but even those horrible acts against the people of God did not warrant yet Herod's destruction. But as soon as Herod... wants to take the place of God in the land of Israel. His destruction is assured. 
and it will be direct and immediate. So the angel of the Lord strikes him. Why? Because he did not give glory to God. And there, before everyone, he falls down, he is eaten of worms, and he dies. A gruesome, visible death. And the response of verse 24, But the word of the God grew and multiplied. That as God took action in the realm of government, the people of God maintained a prayerfulness and they maintained the testimony of the Word of God. That is the secondary facet that the church did. They waited on the Lord in prayer and then they simply kept preaching the Word. The cost is irrelevant. It is the ministry of the Word that is of critical importance to us. And the, and the fact that God allows opposition to arise of such a horrific nature that they would slay us rather than listen to us. Um, they will deal with one day. We are studying that in Revelation on Sunday night. We, we just looked at it um, last week when we looked at the sixth seal and the breaking forth of it as a response to the uh, martyrs of the fifth seal that we looked at three weeks ago. Um, God waits. He waits till a, a completed number of martyrs. And so martyrdom is our expectation. We are in this world, um, but not of it. This is the day of trouble, of tribulation. These are the, the hours of our uh, testing, of our trying. And we want instead comfort. We want to go to heaven carried on pillows of ease, the song says. Is that what I want? Do I expect that, really? Is that how I get to heaven, is on pillows of ease? That wasn't the church's expectation. They didn't take any action here to try to ease the extent of their opposition. Their prayer was that God would deliver them. Delivering Peter from the midst of it to complete his work. Now, on this occasion, Peter was delivered, but we know historically that that wasn't true his whole life. His, the historical narrative says that at one point Peter was arrested, that he was crucified by the Romans on a cross, that he requested that it be inverted. So one day he is going to die for the name of Christ. That is in his future. And so it's not that God doesn't allow these things to happen to his people, because he did. He, the chapter starts off with, with James being killed. The life of Peter will, will on this earth will conclude with a being crucified. The fact is, these are the days. These, this is the age of our trouble, of our tribulation, of opposition, as we look forward to that day. And that trying and that testing is going to come from various places. But it has been our experience that we should be able to get to heaven on pillows. This is not the church's expectation. We don't find them screaming out, how could this be? You find them in prayer and you find them in the administration of the word. Barnabas and Saul are going to go home and they're going to take John Mark with them um, for intending to prepare him for ministry. Um, but we find that they are all about the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ that they are enveloped in prayer, that they will take no action that belongs in God's hands. 
The government is God's business. It is His. You do not find them, nor will you find anywhere in following in the Scriptures where the people of God take up action against their government, even as the government is seeking to kill them. They just don't do it. Because they recognize that the government that is, is born of God, and that we, that we simply minister underneath that weight, and whether it is light because the righteous reign, or whether it is heavy because of the evil ones, um, because there are no judges in the land, then still I will serve the Lord. This is their expectation. That as they have dealt with and absorbed the opposition of the religious community, they have now been willing to be subject to the opposition of their government, trusting the Lord to resolve it. And from what I can tell in this text, God was allowing Herod this kind of exercise against his people, and it wasn't for that that Herod died. It wasn't for his action against James. It wasn't for his actions against Peter. It wasn't for any intended actions that he had against the church at all. It was singularly because he accepted the worship of men, the men put their trust and their faith and their accolades in him, and he accepted that instead of redirecting them to God. And we have such a government today. How do we respond? To a government that's willing to deny God and to set itself up as God, that you trust in us. (laughs) That's what they should put on our coinage. Not in God we trust, because we stopped doing that a long time ago, yes? What is our expectation? Are we constant in prayer? And are we constant in seeing that the Word of God grows? That's our right response. And while we watch the world choosing multiple means, including the churches, to try to send a message to our government to, uh, and we, I've seen, a, I've seen over those last months, uh, 18 months or so, pastors and churches, not very far from here even, in open opposition to their government. Daring them to their fiscal disobedience, daring their government through their speech to take action against them. This is not the way of Christ and His church. This is the way of rebellion that God hates. The course of action that we take when we encounter seasons of opposition, persecution, is laid out very clearly here by the church. We will take, put ourselves in constant prayer. We will wait on the Lord to deliver where He needs to deliver and to destroy when He needs to destroy for the reasons He needs to destroy. It is our primary concern, or ought to be, that the Word of God grows and multiplies. That's our mission. That's our objective. The cost for that being accomplished is irrelevant. Because this is the only hope man has. And let's be real honest. The reason most within our church circles are moving against political parties and taking legal action with regard to taxation and such issues is for their own comfort. 
is not that the Word of God would grow and multiply. It is not. There's nothing less than Christian avarice at work. We want our beds of ease. We want to float comfortably into our heavenly reward. When the Bible teaches a very different view. Where the scriptures teach us that we should be harmless. Wise, certainly, but harmless. That we should be submissive. And that we should be ready to suffer for his name's sake and count it an honor to do so. The church was willing to suffer, had suffered. They come to God in prayer and we're not really completely told the extent of that prayer, but it was offered to God for Peter. Whether God chooses to deliver or whether Peter simply needed the strength to face what was coming, they were going to offer prayers for him. We don't find them offering prayers against their king. For one who has submitted to the will of God, then we recognize that these authorities are of God, and it is inconsistent for us to pray against them, for to do so is to pray against God, who will put them there to accomplish His purposes, and He will judge them on that day. Not because of their maltreatment of us. There will be a facet of that in his wrath, certainly. But ultimately because they did not heed him as God and give him the glory. Not because they treated you bad. Because they have denied their creator. And for this we wait. But while we wait, we do not wait expecting everything to go easy. We're in the midst of a famine. On top of the famine comes persecution. In the midst of all this, the Word of God grew and multiplied. Well, that would be our testimony. We sang a song about God's refining fire. And in that song, we act, that song actually invites you to, invites it. It says, Oh, that God's refining fire would be stoked in our lives, that it would be breathed out upon us, for therein is the purification that we need. The church was purified. And it's no mistaking that they multiplied. Because pure religion, pure faith in Christ, is always going to attract the lost. It is this weak, beggarly, selfish, pseudo-faith that turns the world off. And it is what faith in America looks like. Want to reach the lost? It's got to be pure. To be pure, it's going to have to be refined by fire. So rather than trying to avoid it by looking for beds of ease, we ought to rather question why we have so little opposition. What are we missing in our Christian walk, individually and as a body? That God might receive the glory, that the Word of God might grow and multiply. When we are forced into seasons of prayer, these are the best of days for the church. When we can go weeks without prayer, when the prayer service of churches are least attended, we cannot claim 
to be in the best spiritual position. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. And we admit that our faith is way too easy. And this has softened us. Made us like the world. Lord, help us to be unafraid to offend for the sake of the Word of God. Give us the courage, the fortitude to see that your Word goes forth in people's lives, that the cost becomes irrelevant to us. Lord, that when that opposition occurs, that we might not question why to you, but rather pray to you for strength and ultimate deliverance. Lord, we are ashamed at how often we abandon you if things don't go always our way. Forgive us for this kind of discontentment that is sin. Lord, we sing and have songs in our hymnody that speaks of purification and trials and testing and fires. But it is very alien to our experience. So, Lord, our prayers really tonight, today, are for our brethren who are having to be very careful in their worship places like India because the opposition is very near, very real. And Lord, we do pray for them. Not just that they be guarded and be safe, Lord, there's no place of safety here for us. We wait for that place of safety you have prepared for us. Lord, we pray that you might strengthen them, that the Word of God might grow, even in the midst of the opposition they are experiencing. And Lord, our prayer is that as we join them in spirit, that we might be prepared to serve you well enough to be counted worthy of suffering for your name's sake. Praise the in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.